Hello, my name is John Weinberger, and I'm the Artist and Community Relations Director here at WXVU 89.1 FM Villanova. Villanova Society of Veteran Affairs with the Department of Theology and Campus Ministry recently presented the Combat Veterans Panel, a discussion on how has faith impacted the ethical decisions and challenges faced during combat. The panel was moderated by Sean Wade, a freshman starting his law career here at Villanova. Sean is a Marine veteran with combat experience in Afghanistan. The participants were Kenneth Detrow, a Marine Colonel, Infantry Officer, and Combat Veteran that has served in Operation Just Cause in Panama, Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, twice in Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, twice in Operation Iraqi Freedom in Iraq, and he has also led a crisis response force as the mission commander for the U.S. Embassy evacuation of the diplomatic mission in Tripoli, Libya in 2014. The third participant in the panel was Joe Evans, a U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel, Infantry Officer, Ranger, and Foreign Area Officer with combat experience in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, and Kosovo. He is currently a Ph.D. student in theology here at Villanova University. Uh, my name is Mike. Um, I'm the director of the Office of Veterans and Military Service Members. This is a student veteran club event uh, in cahoots with my office. And um, you know, we have some folks here with some combat experience underneath their belts uh, up on the, uh, whatever you wanna call this. Uh, but there was sitting, sitting here and I think combined, there's probably over 50 years of military experience with I would say close to 20 deployments uh, worldwide between the three of them. Um, and so that means they've been a lot of places and seen a lot of things. And today, what really they're going to be talking about is the intersection of faith, ethics, and our decision-making in combat and, and how that all sort of plays together uh, and sometimes not so nicely together. Uh, Ken is a adjunct professor here. Uh, he spent 30 years in the Marine Corps. Joe is a PhD student here. Uh, he spent 20 some years in the army uh, as they're both uh, infantry officers though. So 10th Mountain Division, uh, United States Marine Corps uh, leading men into precarious situations. And Sean is a freshman here, a student veteran fresh out of the Marine Corps. He was a recon Marine um, and he's been to Afghanistan amongst other places. So I think the perspective here is gonna be fascinating. And really what the goal for the three of them is, is to have this be a conversation, not to be a lecture. They want your feedback, your input, and your questions to make, I think, the event more rich and meaningful to everyone, if that makes any sense. So don't be shy, ask questions. You know, it's supposed to, it's probably gonna be a pretty deep conversation. We won't be on the, the, the surface. We'll probably get pretty deep, uh, which is okay. Um, but again, please ask questions and welcome. Sean's gonna be, sort of moderating, if you will, but Ken and Jill are gonna sort of kick off with talking a little bit more about their experience. So thanks for coming everyone, I appreciate it. Great, uh, yeah, I'm just gonna echo what Mike said, thanks for coming today. Uh, today we're gonna talk about, uh, we all have our preconceptions, how we do things, how different, how our life experiences influence how we conduct ourselves in certain situations. Within the military, we have the ability to get trained uh, for certain high stress situations and 
as we go through our careers, we, we build on this and, and things change. So we have the 50 something years of experience. I'm the something. Uh, these are the, the 50 years. Uh, these guys have a large breadth of knowledge uh, when it comes to combat, preparing guys for deployment, conducting the, the act itself, and also kind of mentoring and, and leading individuals through those situations and the, and the way back. Uh, so we're going to do a little question session up here. And then if you guys have any questions as well, uh, feel free to chime in or any comments or any, anything you guys want to talk about. Um, we're here to kind of just relate experiences that some people just have on the, from the television or video games or what have you, and kind of put a personal face on it and have a little experience together. So Joe, you like to just kind of do a little brief bio on yourself? Sure. Uh, so Joe Evans, as he said, I'm a PhD student in the theology department. Uh, I'd like to thank our department chair, Dr. Peter Spitaler, for being here. Um, Professor Mark Graham from the uh, ethics side. Um, so I, I was in the U.S. Army for 20 years. Um, I, I was commissioned out of Lehigh University uh, doing ROTC in 1999. I retired in June of 2019. Uh, the first 10 years uh, of my career, I was in the infantry. I was an infantry officer, uh, served primarily in the 10th Mountain Division. Uh, during that time, deployed to uh, Kosovo doing peacekeeping operations, uh, then to Afghanistan to train the initial units of the Afghan National Army uh, back in 2002 and 3. Uh, went from there to Iraq after the invasion in 2003, was there for a year. Uh, during that time, was in uh, uh, Al Ambar province, then uh, up to Fallujah and Ramadi for the last half. And then went back to Afghanistan in 2006, was there for an 18 month deployment in uh, East Northeastern Afghanistan in, uh, in the Hindu Kush. So in Kunar province, uh, Nuristan province doing counterinsurgency operations for that year and a half. Then in 2010, so about halfway through my career, I switched to be a South Asian foreign area and foreign foreign area officer. Uh, so I initially went to Pakistan, uh, was trained in Pakistan for a year, then did some uh, work uh, advising and supporting the Pakistan Army's counterinsurgency operations. In the same region I had been in Afghanistan, just on the other side of the border, uh, for a couple years with them, and then uh, went to the came back to the U.S. Went to the Pentagon in Washington D.C. Worked on the Joint Chiefs of Staff for three years. Uh, doing foreign policy work related to Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, then went to Nepal where I was uh, did security cooperation work in Nepal that was related to peacekeeping, post-conflict uh, transformation in the peace process, as well as disaster response because of the big earthquake that was there uh, right after I got there. Um, so, so all those different uh, experiences kind of shape my perspectives on, on what we're going to talk about today. Great. Thanks, John. Thanks, everybody, for coming today. Uh, my name's Ken DeTrue. I'm a uh, retired Marine Colonel. I commissioned in the Marine Corps in 1988, and I retired in 2018. Um, and career infantry officer, like Joe, um, a lot of deployments under my belt. When it comes to when I was asked to do this and faith in combat and, and ethical decision making, you know, I based it off the deployments I was on as a second lieutenant platoon commander. I was in Operation Just Cause in Panama. For the old guys in here, you'll remember that. That was 1989, December 19th, 1989. Um, one year later, I found myself in Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. 
did a couple Westpac deployments, uh, which is really where the Marine Corps forward just takes a forward presence in West, Western Pacific. Uh, and then really for me in my career and for myself, my family, and I know for, for Joe as well, 9-11 was, was the game changer. You know, 9-11 blew up our lives, uh, personally, professionally, um, really changed the op tempo. Um, I found myself, I did two, two, two Iraq deployments, two Afghanistan deployments, and then as a colonel, I was the CO of 8th Marine Regiment, and I did a special purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force mission out of Southern Europe, but it was for Western and North Africa. And I was the mission commander for the embassy evacuation in Libya in the summer of 2014, if you recall that uh, embassy evacuation. So, you know, when we talk faith in combat, the, in my combat experiences as a battalion commander, I lost 129 guys. Um, 121 were wounded in action, nine were killed in action. Um, that, that's, that's where we get to the heart of this, is uh, you know, making those ethical decisions in really trying times. Um, this is a very sterile environment, as, as we talked about as we prepared for this. And, and it's hard to talk about these things in this kind of environment because combat in the combat environment is not is not is not normal it's not is not something you can become comfortable with and i would say that you know just not getting too far ahead and i know we have questions and answers but you know for for 30 years i wore two saint michael medals and a saint george medal and they're not good luck john I, I, you, you become a little more spiritual uh when you operate in these kinds of environments and deal with loss, death and dying, uh, train them or make split second decisions, uh, very challenging. Um, and I've found myself, you know, praying more deeply, um, found myself, you know, often you don't have time to pray, but when I did pray, I was asking for strength, courage and wisdom and, and making pretty tough decisions. And, and some decisions I got right, and some decisions, not that I got wrong, but I could have made a better, you know, made a better call at least, or, or have had a better outcome. So I think that's what we're really setting up this talk to be about is, is our faith in combat, is how do we make ethical decisions and how do we, you know, uh, come, to, come to grips with all that, so. I think that's a great jumping off point. Uh, you talked about judgment and, and wisdom. In the United States, we have the luxury of having a professional military force. Uh, you two gentlemen have, have spent a career uh, in the military. You didn't just uh, have a draft number and got drafted and went over. So the U.S. military, for you, the, the Army, and for you, the Marine Corps, uh, <clears throat> trained you through your career in different levels of leadership and different levels of, uh, of judgment to execute the, the conduct of, of warfare. Uh, could you give us a little bit of insight on how the Army prepares soldiers to uh, lead in those situations? What kind of doctrine grounds that? Sure. Um, so, so, so I think there's, there's two parts to that for me anyway. One is, is, is like you said, that educational foundation, right? The training, 
that, that goes into it. Um, you know, in our professional military education as leaders, whether it's in the, the basic course as an officer and, you know, advanced courses uh, and staff colleges or college along the way, you're, you know, there's, there's discussion of ethics and, 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 and how, to, um, how to act in war, in combat. Um, and then when, when you actually have to do it on the ground and right, you're, you're kind of guided by the law of armed conflict, by the rules of engagement. Um, but then there's your own personal role in that too, right? How, how does your own conscience shape things? How does your own compassion as a human being for other human beings, your care for others, uh, both your soldiers as well as the people that are involved in the conflict? Um, you know, as, as Catholic and being aware of just war theory and the use and bellow aspects of, of uh, just war theory, I think they probably all of that comes together. Um, at a unit level, though, when it's actually time to to execute, I think a lot of times you just kind of have to rely on uh, a lot of it's the result of the command climate. You know, who's in charge? Who are the leaders? And how seriously do they take it? Are they just, you know, their interpretation of the rules of engagement, their interpretation of, of how to apply the law of armed conflict and, and, and do some bellow and, and their own conscience. Um, institutionally, I think for the army as a whole, unfortunately, I think it comes down to the legal aspects um, as far as decisions that are made. But for, for units on the ground, it's, it's that command climate that dictates. And I would say when we talk about ethics and <clears throat> training, um, it's inculcated in us early on, you know, whether it's boot camp or officer candidate school. When we talk about ethos like honor, courage, and commitment, it's more than more than just a bumper sticker. It's more than a recruiting ad. You know, honor, and courage, and commitment. You can't you can't have honor. You can't have courage without having an ethical foundation. Um, and I think we we strive to achieve that ethical uh, high ground. In, in what we do. And especially when you take a look at the, the campaigns and the theaters that, that we have fought in was a counterinsurgency fight. And to understand a counterinsurgency fight, this, the enemy is very elusive. The enemy is trying to drive a wedge between the people of the country and between us who are trying to stand the country up. I mean, for in simple terms. Um, so what we were combating every day were really snipers, improvised explosive devices, suicide vehicle form, improvised explosive devices. So it was that constant, you know, uh, you know, split second decisions that Marines would have to make at vehicle checkpoints as car and vehicles approached or, or walking, you know, counter sniper operations, very, very challenging environment um, to operate in. But that we always, when, when Joe talks about command climate, you have to be like an evangelical preacher, you know, with Marines in that we have to keep the moral high ground. We have to keep the, the ethical high ground in how we're going to prosecute this, this, our actions, because although the enemy might not play by the same rules, we've got to maybe, you know, because that's who we are as Americans and, and what we believe, but that becomes very challenging because there's, as you're dealing with, losing Marines and you're losing sailors, you know, in the fight, you know, you, you start to operate in very gray areas and it takes leadership and it takes the to command to really make sure that people don't go into a bad space. Um, and I think we've learned a lot of lessons from things like Vietnam, 
Um, and the, the differences between Vietnam and what we experience today, today is an all volunteer force. You know, we're not talking about draftees who don't want to be there, that, that we're mired in a, a very polarized conflict. Um, I think what we, we didn't have that aspect to deal with, but as leaders and as the command climate, as, as Joe mentioned, just really important to consistently beat the same drum of having a high ethical standard, even in this trying environment. Villanova University's WXVU, Villanova. Online at wxvu.villanova.edu. Now available on the free Radio FX app and favorite WXVU. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, I, I think you guys both raised a good point of how you have doctrinal policy and then you have coming down to that individual soldier, marine, or sailor that is underneath you that you're trying to kind of teach what what is right and wrong. And we're going to talk about uh, the intersection of culture and, and religion later with other forces, but within our own military, can you give us a little insight how, <clears throat> as you're preparing Marines, sailors, and soldiers for deployment, how you kind of talk about that eventuality of, of life and death and what it's going to be like when you have that person uh, in your sights getting ready to, uh, you know, pull the trigger. How how do these policy and, and personal beliefs interweave? Because we come, we live in a society that is is quite diverse in our, our religious and, and personal views. So, how do you how do you talk to Marine sailors and soldiers about about those decisions before you get ready to go? Okay. Like that. Okay. Uh, probably, <laughs> you, you go, you go, you go in eyes wide open, you know, in pre-deployment training, we're not just getting on buses and going to the airport and flying to Afghanistan or Iraq unprepared, you know, in pre-deployment preparation and pre-deployment training is you go into it eyes wide open to know that as an infantry officer and as an infantry Marine, I mean, your, your mission as uncomfortable as it is to say in a room like this in a beautiful campus is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. I mean, that's what our mission is. So, I mean, that's what you're a Marine for, is to be able to fight our nation's foes and to locate, close with, destroy the enemy by fire maneuver. So there's no misunderstanding of what that mission is and that you can potentially be faced with this. Um, when you take a look at, at the span of my career, whether it's Panama, just uh, Operation Just uh, Operation Just Cause, Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then as Operation Iraqi Freedom and and Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, they're very different environments, um, and we would both attest that between Iraq and Afghanistan, it could be a toss-up between where you were, but it was a very kinetic environment. So Marines weren't surprised when they got there to experience that kinetic, you know, experience that they were experiencing, you know, that they, that they were running into because at the time, Camp Lejeune from 2001, as I said, the op tempo as a unit, you were either getting ready to deploy, you were deployed, or you just got back from deployment. And then the cycle starts all over again. And so we were learning and I deployed the battalion in the summer of 2006 into the spring of 2007. Um, we had a number of units that we, we get their lessons learned. We get, you know, we, 
be trained through their experiences. We would work with the unit that we were going into that area of operation, you know, and at times we'd experience that the area's gotten better, the area's become stabilized or, you know, more stabilized, but we were in a very high operational tempo that enabled us to be able to learn from each other as units were coming and going and, and getting those after action reports and being able to train to it. So there was no illusion in going into it, I by them. I'd echo everything that, that Kent said, um, but to add for, for, the, for the new soldiers, you know, the ones is you're getting ready to go, is to stress the legitimacy, right, of what you're doing and how we're going to do it, right? So that goes back to that engagement of armed conflict, the, the you know, your, your ethics of conduct in combat, right? Uh, stress that. And and one thing that, that supports that, that allows that to happen is confidence, right? And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later, but uh, I think confidence is a big part of it, not just in you as a leader, have confidence in what you're doing and to show your soldiers, but for your soldiers or Marines or, or sailors or airmen to have confidence in you as a leader. Um, that So to do that, make them good at their jobs, right? So that training, you know, as Ken said, what the Marines mission is, right? To close with and destroy, that's for, for any infantry unit who's going to be fighting on the ground. You know what your mission is, right? So make them good at it. Make them confident in their ability to do that. And that can, can help you avoid that insecurity that can cause people to do things that are gonna hurt non-combatants or, or innocent people because they're scared, because they're not sure about what they're doing. So I think that's a key aspect. Yep. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, when, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, when I'm doing homework, it's a heck of a lot different than when I'm in a test. Uh, I think I was extremely well-trained uh, to deploy, uh, but when those rounds started, uh, coming at us at first, it was like, huh, that sounds like when we're in that infantry immersion trainer, this, this isn't real. And then once you start seeing things like impacts, you start smelling things and you start seeing things and you start hearing things, it kind of creates this all inclusive experience. And then it kind of morphs, uh, like, okay, that was training. Now, now we're here. This is real. This isn't a target that looks like a person. This is a person that person is killing me. That isn't the sound of, a, of gunfire. That, that is gunfire. We are actively being engaged right now. Um, so as you're on deployment, how do you keep yourselves uh, in, that, in that mindset that uh, these are people, but they are the enemy, and then transitioning to your guys that same message? Uh, because we're all human here. We have that self-preservation. It is, it is scary. It is, it does make you angry that people are trying to do this to you. Uh, and then all the while there's a bunch of people mixed into you that they're are kind of in, in between you two, uh, and then mix in people dying or getting injured. So I think the question is, how do you as a leader and as an individual stay on task? and maintain your your ethical and, and moral standing, whether it's through the affirmation of your training or the, the affirmation of the beliefs you have and then uh, echoing that to your guys, uh, Joe. Sure, well, I think, I think there's two, two parts to this, keeping people on task that you're asking and, and, and in combat, there's kind of 
there's all kinds of stuff happening, right? But there's there's two kind of stark extremes, right? That boredom and the isolation when nothing's happening, right? And how do you keep soldiers on task and alert and attentive to what the mission is during those times? And then the second is, you know, in that when when the emotions rise in the heat of the, of you know close combat, when when people are dying, when their friends are dying, when people are getting killed, how do you keep them, you know, focused then or doing the right thing then? You know, as, as you meant with in the act of killing someone. Um, so it's it's a never-ending leadership challenge, right? And you can't you can't do it alone. That's why we have a chain of command and you have your subordinate leaders and we train together as units. Um, I think uh, I think one example for me, I, I'll give an example. In uh, 2006, uh, this was in Afghanistan, uh, in Nuristan province. Um, my unit was conducting a, a dismounted uh, patrol up a valley and we were ambushed from, from the east side of the valley. And uh, another guy, we, we had three, three soldiers get killed immediately. Uh, and, you know, we, we responded to the ambush. Um, we're able to maneuver, get out of there, um, get, get out of that part of the valley um, and reconsolidate. But then uh, we had to then try and move forward, you know, to try and find out where did these guys had ambushed us, where did they get to, right? And there was a village on the, on the throw, a couple of villages, um, kind of three different places where, where, where they could go. Um, well, as you can imagine, just having watched three of their friends die, um, having just been ambushed, emotions were pretty high, right? Um, now, I don't know, I didn't know then, I still don't know where those, those guys had ambushed came from. Right? Did they come from one of those villages? Did they come from somewhere else? There's really no way to know. But what I did was I sent three platoons to each one of those villages um, to try and gain a little more information, see if they could find any indicators of where the enemy had been. And, but in sending them out to do that, I really had to balance, one, the operation need in this out and try and, and, and stabilize the valley with the recognition that these guys are pissed, right? They're going to go into a village that they're in their mind is responsible for killing their friends, right? What is the reaction? What is their reaction going to be when they come into this village and come across a 20 year old kid who probably has an AK-47 because everybody does, right? What are they going to do when they find whatever they might take for evidence that they were involved, right? So trying to stress within my platoon sergeants and platoon leaders and the squad leaders that we're gonna go out and do this mission, not to take retribution, right? Cause that's not gonna be helpful to try, you know, to take it seriously and, and do the mission the right way. Um, but avoid allowing your emotions to get the better of you and making this situation worse, right? Cause we weren't gonna leave that valley. We were gonna be there. And the ultimate objective is to create a peaceful environment and if we go in there and knock down houses, detain more guys, kill somebody, that's going to be counterproductive to our overall goal, right? Despite still trying to find the guys that just ambush us and prevent from happening again. Yeah, and that goes back to, as I said, in the insurgency, they're trying to drive the wedge between mm -hmm. the U.S. forces and the people. And in a case like that, you know, you, you, don't, you don't want to lose the people because of the way you reacted to something they had no responsibility for. And even when they 
you know, there, there's been instances, you know, in my experience where you have towns and villages and, and areas that aid and abet the enemy a little bit. But they're coerced to do that. And you have to understand that as a professional, that this is, they have a self-preservation mode too. And they have no reason to pick our side over any other side. But you got to keep that in mind that they are not the enemy. And, and everything Joe's describing is requiring the commander and small unit leaders, those non-commissioned officers to really have a hyper uh, self-awareness, a hyper awareness of their surroundings and what's going on and, and their people, you know, that, you know, in instances like this and situations like this to really lean on one another. I mean, that's what, what we rely more than anything else is leaning on one another to, to get us through tough times. Less about killing the enemy, but when you lose someone, when you lose one of your squad mates, when you lose one of your fire team mates, you know, what we trained to, there was going to be no, there was no illusion when we deployed in 2006 that we may not come home with everybody. That's a hell of a thing, you know, to head on deployment, knowing by seeing other units coming back that who's it going to be? And having that awareness that this is the result of what we, we do. And the way that, you know, I approached it, and it was a mentor of mine that told it to me years ago, um, was when you do take casualties, the one thing that you have to do is you have to honor the fallen, you comfort the family, and the family can include the unit, but the, the family at home as well. And then you have to, have to get right back to the mission. I mean, there was not time to mourn. There was not time to drag ass and feel sorry for yourself and, 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 and frankly, more, um, which is why we all have a little bit of issues now, um, you know, dealing with that way. And it's not, I'm not, I'm not playing it lightly, but when you don't have that time to mourn, you know, you try to encapsulate it in a small amount of time. It would be three or four days between the time you lose a Marine or sailor to the time you conduct a, 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 a memorial ceremony, and then you're right back into it. And this is and this is a period, you know, when, when I was there in six and seven, it's a period where while you're having the memorial service, you're having a kinetic event going on and, and you're losing someone that day. As I, as I reflected on this and broke out some of my journals, I don't know how I made it through some of those days of, you know, being the battalion commander, being responsible for having, you know, how I made it through you know, and the Marines themselves, but how I made it through that level of, of that tempo of kinetic activity was, was very challenging. Villanova University's WXVU, Villanova. Online at wxvu.villanova.edu. Now available on the free Radio FX app and favorite WXVU. Um, we have that dehumanity dehumanization, potentially, uh, that anger that can be involved. At the end of the day, in, in the military, we are executing policy instilled from the, the president on down uh, in the way that military commanders formulate how they are going to execute that policy is through rules of engagement. Uh, you guys have a, a diverse background with, with where you guys have conducted engagements in. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about 
how how these rules influence your guys' actions. Because uh, you guys, we talked about being in a total war environment, like early Iraq, and then we also have a counterinsurgency environment uh, that you guys have faced in Afghanistan. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how how you're kind of interfacing with those two levels of, of enemy engagement and how that also influences the local populace when you're making your decisions on, on conducting operations. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think you make an important point, Sean, of the different types of environments, you know, the, the highly kinetic things like Fallujah or early part of Iraq or the counterinsurgency later in Iraq or in, or in Afghanistan or the peacekeeping operations or short periods like just calls or something like that. Um, so I think my, you know, any answer to this question is, is that it's going to be contextually dependent on the type of war, the type of conflict, where you're at. And in a counterinsurgency, especially, you know, I'll focus on Afghanistan, um, understanding the, the context. Um, you know, in the place I was in, in Kunar and, and Nuristan province, in a counterinsurgency fight, needing to recognize that killing can't be the objective, even though that's what we're trained to do and that's what we're good at. Because every time you kill someone, you're creating 10 more enemy, right? Maybe that day, maybe a generation from now, whatever, but that's going to be the result. So trying to minimize um, that likelihood, you know, so that you can reach that, that overall war objective of establishing peace. Um, so that's why I think, you know, I'll go back to the use and bellow again, right? Non-combatant immunity, proportionality, right intention, all those things are important. And but not just ethically, but tactically, right? There's an, a tactical advantage to that. If you can avoid killing the enemy, if you can establish peace somehow without getting involved in that, um, as counterintuitive as it might be, that can help you more likely achieve your objective. Um, I'll give you know, sort of the example we were talking about last week um, of that, uh, when I was, I'll go to Iraq, when, when uh, when I was in Iraq, there was a road uh, just north of us where uh, logistical convoy supplies would bring bring stuff to us, and uh, they were constantly getting blown up. They they would plant IEDs, bombs in the road, and, and blow up these convoys, and, and, and were killing people, injuring people. Um, so so my unit was tasked to go out and overwatch this road to prevent an emplacement of these roadside bombs, and. Uh, we had intelligence reports that said, yeah, they're pretty likely to do it this time of night, you know, two to four o'clock in the morning. Um, it's very likely going to be a team of three to five guys who are going to, you know, place the bomb, run an electrical cord to some place where they can detonate it. Uh, so we went out there. Uh, once it got dark, we set up our overwatch sites. And sure enough, at about three o'clock in the morning, we see three guys walking up the road carrying some bags and shovels. Um, they stop right there in front of us. They start digging in the side of the road. Uh, one of them sets something. We couldn't tell exactly what it was. A little box on the side of the road runs a wire back to a shack. Um, so this particular situation was fitting every characteristic of somebody planning a roadside bomb. Not only that, we had, um, intelligence that suggested they were going to do it in that spot at that time. Um, 
we checked with our, our higher headquarters, let them know what was going on. Um, the rules of engagement made it, made it very clear that we were certainly authorized and within our rights to engage the enemy at that time. Um, and as they continued to dig and it became very clear that if they were planning an IED, it was gonna be in place and, and threaten lives, right? If not just our military convoys, but also anybody, the civilian population, anybody else that might be in that area. Uh, and we engaged them. We, we fired at them. We killed two out of the three. Um, ran down and captured the third one as he tried to run away. Um, as we were interrogating him, he was insisting that he was a contractor for the local government there to work on the sewer. Um, not overly convincing given the situation there at three o'clock in the morning on the side of the road. Uh, but we called that up and our battalion headquarters said, you know, we have no awareness of anybody doing any kind of work. Nobody's told us. Um, but after about a half a day of investigation, it turned out that they were. Those three guys were not planning a bomb. They were there to work on the sewer. Uh, so we killed three city contract, three guys that have been hired by the city to dig a hole and repair a sewer line. And while we were legally within our right, within the rules of engagement, Right, we didn't violate that. Um, our, our standard operating procedures for how we did things had to be rethought because what are the effects? Well, we just killed three guys that were not, that, that were innocent, so to speak. Um, secondly, what are the effects, right? Now there's a pretty strong argument for whatever insurgency elements there are out there who are advocating against our presence to say, look, the US military is just killing civilians because they feel like it. These guys were not terrorists, they were not insurgents, they were working for the city and the US military killed them, right? So that, that public reaction, we lost the public support because of what we did, right? So that required us to go back and kind of rethink within the rules of engagement, how do we apply those methods? Right? And there were, there were failures all along the line, failure to coordinate between the city and our headquarters, the higher headquarters down. Um, and determining when is it okay to kill somebody. And that's the, that's the re, you know, rules of engagement have mm -hmm. taken a lot of, you know, criticism over the last, you know, over the two conflicts. But I mean, that's why they're in place is for instances like that and able to be able to have a, a construct that has to meet certain criteria before you can engage. And bad things happen in combat, bad things happen in war. And that's, a, that's an example of a bad thing happening that is the harder situation to take than if you know you've killed an enemy combatant. If a Marine trained to locate close with and destroy the enemy kills an enemy combatant, you can live with that a lot easier than you can knowing the killing of innocents. And, but at the same time, you have to understand that the killing of innocents is gonna happen in warfare. I mean, if you go back, you know, and this is this is an insurgency, not like World War II and, and you know, firebombing cities where, you know, hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of civilians were, were killed, that we take every precaution that we possibly can to prevent that from happening. But at the same time, just like anything, in baseball, hitters not going to bat a thousand. And in combat, you're not going to get it right every time. And Marines have to come to the consciousness that that's going to happen. And, and just to go a little bit further, I mean, we did have 
controls in place of, you know, every regiment had a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You know, we had operational stress, uh, operational uh, Oscar, Oscar, operational stress control and readiness teams to if a Marine was showing symptoms of, of um, taking it badly, is showing symptoms of, you know, withdrawing and, and, and you know, uh, just not, not handling the situation. We did have the means of, of psych, psychological support uh, for those Marines and, and some would be pulled off the line for, for a period of time um, and some returned and some didn't. Yeah, I think it's, you can have the, the clearest rules of engagement on paper, uh, but once you get on the ground, it can be extremely an, an ambiguous thing. In Helmand Province, where I was, uh, we had great valleys and it was, it was pretty open. And in America, people drive on the roads. Uh, where I was, people pretty much recommended driving on the roads, but they, they didn't really drive on the road all the time. And uh, we were working the retrograde of, of Marine Forces, so we were consolidating. Uh, so it was, our mission was to keep these roads open. Uh, the Taliban knew that, and they were countering our efforts and placing IEDs on this road. So when we would locate an IED, the, there's certain procedures in how to deal with that. You have to uh, keep the civilian population away. And when you're doing this, if a civilian or potentially Taliban violates this bubble that you're, this cordon that you're setting up, it's, you can engage them. Okay, we're in the desert. We're blocking off the road. It's just as easy for this person to drive their Tacoma or Hilux off the road and around us. Technically, he's violating that cordon. So as that machine gunner who's sitting up on that armored vehicle is well within his right to engage that vehicle, is it the right thing to do? And this is decisions that, you know, people much like yourselves who are 17, 18, 19 years old are locked in on this vehicle that is now in a kill zone, like an area that they can shoot at. And it's their decision to say, are they endangering other people's lives? Am I following the intent of my commander like these, these guys? Am I going to be able to live with what happens to this person if I did make the wrong decision? So even that's a split second decision that this person is having to conduct which may affect the rest of their lives and that person who's driving that vehicle who may be doing the wrong thing. Um, so these, these rules of engagement are guided by these principles that we have through training, through our faith in whatever religion we have and also the faith in the command that we have that they are trying to protect us. And if we act in accordance to these, in accordance with these rules of engagement, we're gonna be able to live with ourselves executing these these rules of engagement um and can, that can be quite challenging it's even if you are following these rules of engagement sometimes individuals have a tough time dealing with those those ramifications of the decisions they make and that's that's kind of what falls on the the shoulders of of you gentlemen is guiding these guys through these decisions because even if you do something right you usually see that person at some point because you're com confirming the reason that you engage them and you're going to have to, you know, see that, smell that, uh, touch that, and then move on with that. And then the same thing when you're in an engagement and it's over now and you're dealing with the, your brothers that, or sisters that have fallen, 
and now you're working the retrograde of them. So it's not just in the situation, it's this morphing and building thing that you're going on deployment that that's an individual struggle and also a group struggle working through this. Uh, like you're saying, when you're working through these memorial events and there's still operations to be done, maybe even within that day and stuff going on in the background that's reminding you of what, what you guys are doing there. Uh, so I really I appreciate you guys sharing, shedding some light on that. Uh, and I think, think that leads into, you guys talk about what a, what a legal order is. Uh, so we have orders within the Marine Corps like we were in the Army that we were just talking about under these rules of engagement. And it's up to the commander to create these orders um, and making sure that they're, they lie within the rules of engagement and within your ethics. Um, so you guys did a good job on touching that. I'm not sure if there's anything you want to revisit on yeah, this subject a little more. Let me go back to story time again with this question. Um, and, and this one isn't going to involve killing people. Um, so I was given, given the mission uh, to kill and capture uh, a militia commander in Nuristan province. And, and the intelligence reporting on this guy was that he possessed an anti-aircraft machine gun um, up in the mountains of Afghanistan. And that his plan was to shoot down U.S. and coalition helicopters that flew into the valley. Um, so a pretty significant threat. There had been other reporting against him. Um, and my company's mission was to go find this guy and get rid of him, basically. Um, but to me, even though that was a legal mission, right, uh, because of the intelligence and the threat, um, it didn't quite seem right. And, and I also didn't know, I didn't think from, from my experience being in that valley, every village had a militia commander because if they didn't, the other villages would take over that village and take their water, take their livestock, take their women, take everything, right? Um, so my, I, I won't say I disregarded the order, but I didn't quite carry it out the way they wanted me to. And I went to that village and walked right into the middle of it and said, I wanted to talk to this guy. Um, and he came right out to meet me, invited me into his home. And sure enough, he had a 30 caliber anti-aircraft machine gun in his house, uh, along with boxes of grenades, RPGs, rockets, um, AK-47s, every kind of weapon you could think of. Um, and I asked what he planned to do with those. And he said it was to defend his village, in particular against another village on the other side of the mountain that was constantly raiding them and their, their grazing lands. And he was planning an operation because one of the guys in the other village had looked at his daughter a couple of weeks earlier. Uh, so I said, um, you know, I wished him luck with that particular operation, but said, I can't let you keep an anti-aircraft weapon here, right? Uh, even if it wasn't going to be beneficial to me having to live and operate in this valley if I got rid of him, right? If I killed him, if I, if I detained him. Um, he was a well-respected member of that village. And if I were to kill him, take him away, um, I, I wouldn't be welcome there. Neither would the American soldiers in that area. And somebody else is gonna replace him, right? They, they have to have, have their own militia. Um, so we, we negotiated a deal where I let him keep that machine gun because of its symbol of strength that it gave him, but I took the firing pin, right? So the weapon didn't work anymore. Um, I let him keep the AK-47s, 
I took the grenades, um, I took the rockets, and I let him keep the RPGs, right? So we kind of had a, a, I left him with a fairly formidable military force considering the villages up there, but at the same time made sure that he was no longer a threat. Villanova University's WXVU, Villanova. Online at wxvu.villanova.edu. Now available on the free Radio FX app and favorite WXVU. To coalition aircraft that were going to fly into that valley um, or to us. And sort of in exchange for not killing him, not detaining him, um, in that symbol of good faith that he would provide an intelligence update to me or, or whichever coalition forces were in there. Let me know if there was anybody coming into the village that uh, wasn't supposed to be there, that they didn't recognize in other parts of the valley. Um, and he became a, a, a useful ally for us. And uh, there wasn't much that happened in that valley for the next nine, 10, 11 months that he didn't let us know was going to happen beforehand, um, at least in some form. Yeah. And I think Joe's story really illustrates the complexity, you know, the complexity of, of really what you described was counterintuitive, you know, and for a 17 or 18 year old that's going to see a anti-aircraft gun, those same things isn't going to make the connect, isn't going to make the, you know, process that the same way as you, as you did seeing, seeing the bigger picture. And I, and I think that's, that's where we get into the, you know, ethical decision-making is what is best here. And is, is it best to capture this guy and bring him in and haul in all this up or, or not? Um, and I, I think it's important for the leader as we talk about ethical decision-making and, and, and faith in combat in, is that you can instill that same kind of thought process into your brains, into, you know, this, this is, this is a game of high, high, you know, this is a game of chess, you know, this isn't, this is, you know, uh, uh, something that that's, you know, what it may look like on the surface may not be what it really is. And, and that's, that's counterinsurgency warfare. So Ken and Joe, uh, but I want to start with you, Ken. So Panama, uh, Persian Gulf, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, those first two conflicts seem very much, I use the term loosely, a traditional conflict where we have uh, two opposing coalitions of forces um, battling as national identities um, for land and resources. Uh, your latter part in Iraq and Afghanistan initially was the conventional war that transitioned to counterinsurgency. Um, working with people of different, we talked about in the beginning where we have Americans of different backgrounds, but now we have different countries, not only of different socioeconomic levels, but also religious levels, uh, navigating that coalition and, and that operation. Could you shed some light on, on how you, uh, overcame that obstacle? Yeah, I'll try to peel this one. I think there's a few things that, that kind of come up in it in, you know, most Americans, I mean, we're all, we're all grounded in our formation is in a Judeo-Christian, you know, sense. Um, when we're dealing, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, whether it's, um, you know, when you're dealing with the Muslim culture, you know, inshallah, you know, God's will, 
you know, when that happened to, as, as Joe described that story, uh, happening to the contractors, the way we would take it, if that was our brother and brother-in-law, is far greater than they probably took it in that it's inshallah, it's, it's God's will, like we can't change that. Um, that, that was, that was tough getting, you know, used to because we couldn't apply our same template over situations, you know, as, as far as, you know, the consequences of them. Um, when we talk about going to the, the differences in the conflicts, when you look at Panama and Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, I mean, these were lopsided wins. You know, they, they weren't, they weren't drawn out, you know, uh, you know, we spent, we spent a good, good eight, nine years, you know, heavy in, in Iraq and 20 years in Afghanistan. Um, these were, you know, kind of lopsided, lopsided wins for us. Um, so it, it's big difference between the, the, the two experiences. Where do you even begin? Um, I guess between the different experiences. So I guess, you know, for me, it was almost a escalation, right? You know, starting with, with Kosovo and, and the peacekeeping operation, then the initial training of the Afghan National Army, some kinetic engagement, but not too much. Um, then Iraq, which was certainly some pretty high kinetics, and then shifting to that counterinsurgency fight for a long period of time in Afghanistan. Um, as far as the religious cultural stuff, I think, uh, I mean, it certainly applied in, in, in all four of those cases. Um, one instance that jumps out in my mind is, is, is uh, a situation, and I'll go to the, the, last, the last one, Afghanistan and Kunar province. Um, we were, we were working closely with the Afghan National Army and I had an Afghan National Army company operating with me and three of their guys, two, two or three of their guys were killed um, in, in, in an attack. Um, and so, so that commander was very angry. At the same time, there was a mosque uh, on the side of the hill that was broadcasting some anti-coalition, anti-Afghan army messages is what, kind of what we were getting out of it. Um, so the Afghan National Army commander wanted to go up and storm the mosque and kill the mullah. Um, kind of similar to the previous, uh, you know, mission that I was talking about, it's probably not the best idea. Uh, so I, I convinced him, how about we invite the mullah down and talk to us? Let's find out why, you know, they're killing our guys. Why are they saying these things about us? Um, and he agreed the, the mullah came down and, and he met with us. <coughs> pretty courageous on his part. Um, and we talked for about two hours. Um, and, and he, uh, he it would have turned out, a, a, of course, a little bit of misunderstanding on both sides, that he was really more advocating that people stay away from us because there was a threat of us being attacked and he didn't want kids being run over by military vehicles or being hurt by, by a bomb. Um, at the same time, he was able to explain to us uh, some of the things that we might be doing to make things worse. Um, one thing in particular that jumps out in my mind is the uh, allowing them to recover the bodies of people that we shot. Uh, because for us and our rules of engagement allowed, right? If we shot somebody, 
well, you know, they're carrying a, a vest with grenades and they've got the rifle. Well, we know the insurgents are going to want to come and get that, right? So we would just set up an ambush from however far away, wait for somebody to come recover that body, not thinking through the Islamic requirement to bury the dead before sundown, that the person that's going to come recover that body is probably the brother or father or whoever that's going to take it back to the family. And we're denying them that right, right? Which is not going to gain goodwill, which is not going to pr promote a, a peaceful sort of coexistence between us and the population. Um, so it's from, again, back understanding that cultural context and, and um, understanding you know, where you are and, and that limited support. Yeah. And going back to the beginning of the, of the question Sean was asking is, we, we would go through cultural awareness training. You know, we would, we would spend time, but I would say it's cultural awareness 101. And it was the advanced course once you got into theater. Um, that, you know, we did put an emphasis on, on trying to understand the culture as difficult as the culture is to understand sometimes. Yeah, I, I think we could uh, talk a lot more about uh, deployments and, and operations. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is, is reintegrating into society. I think we all know the joke, uh, like, you can't, you can't unsee things, you know, that you guys don't want to see. Um, but in the in the serious sense, we have prolonged durations of, of sleep loss, uh, extreme high stress situations, extreme boredom in some cases. Plenty of time to you know think about things that are happening back home. Uh, we have the conduct that guys have to live with. Can you guys talk to us about <clears throat> that journey back home, <clears throat> emotionally, uh, mentally, mentally? physically and what that how how that faith and and what you did guides you on that journey you want to start that one sure um i guess my my initial reaction to that is the journey i don't know if it ever ends but for me it still hasn't and i know for a lot of my friends and, and guys who were with me it hasn't um yeah some things become easier some things become better but you you know, for me, 20 years after that first deployment, 10, 5, 10, 15, however long it's been since the, you know, whatever deployment, it takes time. And, and some things, like you said, you can't unsee, right? Some things are never going to go away. Some, some things get better with time. Some, uh, you know, there's things that you can do that work. Some things you can do that don't work. And, and it's different for everybody. Um, you know, think about the the guys I know from that Afghan deployment that I'm still in touch with. And uh, we're all at different stages. We all react to things differently. Um, how it affects your family works, you know, it, it applies differently. Um, and I don't think that process is ever over, right? You know, they kind of sketch it out of the chaplain's brief. He's going to say, you know, after one week, do this, after three weeks, you know, that's good. There's, there's benefit in that. But again, every guy, every family, every person is going to react differently. And I think that's the challenge you have in any kind of conflict. Um, and I think we learned a lot of lessons from Vietnam and the way the Vietnam veteran was not welcomed back uh, into society and the challenges that, you know, we, we see to this day with the Vietnam veteran. And, and there's differences. I, I don't want to make a false analogy there, but there, there's differences in that it is an all-volunteer force. But we have done 
I think, a better job of recognizing the need for reintegration and the recog the recognizing the need that this is something we need to deal with because we're gonna be dealing with it for years to come. Um, and I think Joe hits it on the head. Everybody has their threshold. Um, some, some are a lower threshold than others in, in how they are still impacted from their experiences in, in theater. Um, but I think, you know, I, I wanna believe the glass being half full. I wanna believe that we've done a better job of, you know, even with the VA system, which can take a lot of criticism, but at the same time, when we see, you know, on average 22 service members committing suicide each day, I mean, that's, 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 a, that's not a red flag. I don't know what that is. That's a, that's a red hot air balloon. Um, so I, I think we're addressing it as best as we can, but it's just the reality of conflict. It's a reality of warfare and conflict and the results of it. And I think that's since the beginning of time. Villanova University's WXVU, Villanova. Online at wxvu.villanova.edu. Now available on the free Radio FX app and favorite WXVU. No, I take it back to faith, you know, and I take it back to, you know, um, why, why we kind of jumped on this was just the, the need for spirituality in, in our service members. You know, yes, they are, they are physically strong. They are physically fit. They're mentally strong. They're mentally fit, but they absolutely have to be spiritually fit. Um, no matter what you believe in, um, you know, not everybody needs to get baptized Catholic or anything like that. Um, but that you need that spirituality to get you through the tough times, to kind of rationalize circumstances, to be able to lean on one another and to be able to, you know, pull each other up. Um, and I think that's something that can kind of be lost sometimes because it's easy to be physically strong and, and mentally strong. But when you're talking about spirituality and, and your faith, um, it's, it's personal. Um, and, and I think it's, it's critically important and you realize it becomes a hell of a lot more important in situations that you find yourself in. Any, any questions? We, we did all the talking and we kind of, I, I don't know if there's, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, a two part question, uh, really. Um, Cause you talked about the need for a moral framework to actually appreciate and deploy you know, the rules of engagement and that um, you have to have that in place before you, know, you need it. You have to have that developed. What, uh, what recommendations would you have for here at Villanova? How do we develop that moral framework uh, for rules of engagement for types of conflict that may not even exist yet? I guess what I'm thinking about is uh, the other part of my question is we have our ROTC students who are, as you say, trained and prepared for this, but wouldn't it be more likely that our computer science students and aerospace students, they're going to be involved in, because just as you said, we went from World War II's traditional standing army to standing army to counterinsurgency, which is still though boots on the ground to now it's UAVs and cyber warfare. So what are, can we do to facilitate a better, a moral framework that puts, that gives students a chance to look at rules of engagement for, again, the nature of conflict that 
has vastly changed in the last, you know, the theater of conflict is unlikely to be what it is now, what they're going to have to face. How can we prepare them for that? Can I just uh, be lead off there on that one, please? I, I really appreciate that question. Uh, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Um, we're getting to the point in AI where we're really having a kind of a tough time delineating what is conscious thought and, and what is programming. And we're gonna get to the point where we're, we're not gonna be able to tell where it's, he is doing everything I'm asking. We're having a conversation right now is that a programmer? Is this a human being? Like, is this a sentient being? And what authority do I have to send that that drone that is now pseudo-conscious into a conflict over a, over a human? Um, and so I think that's a great question because we it is going to transition to not just the tacticians like uh, these gentlemen, but also the the engineers who are were kind of it's a gray area. In my opinion, it, we're getting in that, we are already in that gray area where we're transitioning to that. Um, and honestly, sometimes it, it takes the fall uh, before you learn how to land. Uh, but yeah. like, I, I think what you really bring up is, is the classic ethical dilemma and, and that we're, we're venturing into spaces of warfare you know, being cyber, being, you know, drone use of drones and, you know, which we've been using drones, but it really, really puts us in that ethical dilemma of how do we positively ID? How do we, how do we positively identify targets and not assume or surmise through, you know, input that this, this is a, you know, will be a clean hit just to find out that it's not like we just saw in the evacuation of Afghanistan. Yeah, Dan, I, I think it's an impossible question to answer, you know, fully. Um, but, you know, echoing what these two said, and, and I, I think it's, you're never going to get it perfect, right? Because it's always constantly evolving. Um, but I think it's, it's an example of, of the things that we're doing is, is part of it, right? The THL 1000 class, the ethics classes for, for engineers, events like this, this panel discussion, right? However many people see that or, or, or things like that are gonna just help kind of, you know, it's responsibility of, of the professors and, and not just theology and ethics, but, but across the, the school to, to focus on those ethics and formulate people that are gonna make decisions like that. Um, I have to say that I'm just giddy with excitement to hear members of our military talking about ethics and how the military ought to conduct its business. So kudos to you guys for sharing your insights today. Thank you for coming here. Typically, when we talk about ethics, uh, we, we look to principles, rules, and mostly laws, right? So there's some kind of propositional format. It might be the rules of engagement, the Decalogue in the Old Testament, whatever the case may be. My question is more about moral ideals and, and what function should there be? Because Joe has mentioned a couple times, right? The aim of violence is to establish peace, right? That might be moral ideal. From a Christian perspective, we might say, you know, we're called to love our neighbor, right? To be agents of compassion as Jesus was. So what, what's the place in terms of the ethics of the military for moral ideals like that? Well, I, th I think... You know, and I, I'm really not sure of the 
a good answer to it, but I, I think we're we're on that path of of establishing you know the moral ideas, whether it's our national how how our bald eagle looks to the to the olive branches and not the arrows. You know that that what we're doing is trying to enforce the peace, um, and at times that's going to require the prosecution of of, of violence. Um, and, and everybody can sleep well at night to know that there are defenders, there are protectors out there to, to defend our freedoms, to defend, you know, what we stand for, defend our, you know, lifestyle. Um, so I, th I think, I think the military does, does have an established moral ideal. Um, in that sense that, you know, going all the way back to George Washington, um, that, that stated, I, I'll butcher the quote, but, you know, talking about, you know, uh, fighting, you know, defending freedom. Yeah, I, I think something that Sean said is very important to me when he was talking earlier about being in Kandahar uh, or wherever you were talking about. Um, but he, 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 he kind of almost said it, maybe he said it, but the humanity, right? The, the fact that the guy, the 19 year old kid sitting behind the machine gun is a human being, but the person driving that truck and potentially coming into that bubble is a human being. And, and the, everyone there is a human being, right? And recognizing that humanity. And I've worked with enough and I'm not saying the US military is perfect with it, right? There's the, that's easy to lose. It's easy to lose sight of that. There's certainly cases where it happens. Um, but I've, I've worked with enough militaries throughout the world to see cases where they deliberately dehumanize the enemy. Um, and, and the effects from that are horrifying. Um, and, and I don't know how you recover from that either, but I think that humanity is sort of a key aspect of it. And I think that's what you really have to guard against in, in like I said, as, as a commander, as a small unit leader, as an NCO, is you really have to guard against that dehumanization of the enemy. Because if that seeps into a unit, you know, because of the things that have occurred, um, that can have devastating, you know, effects. And I think, you know, we do guard against that. But do we get it right every time? No. Yeah. I can tell you what we do on a, a small unit scale. Uh, I was a combatives instructor as I uh, rounded out my service, and we talked about use of force continuum a lot. This is, if he does X, I can do Y. Once I do Y, depending on how he responds, I can do Z. Uh, and instead of always being able to kill the person, which is technically what we're justified to do, oftentimes as soon as somebody engages us, can I de-escalate the situation is what we train guys. And in order to do that, we have thoroughly ramped up our conduct of, of high stress training, which is if I can make this as realistic as possible, eventually he's gonna get better at thinking through these situations. And then when he's downrange in that high stress situation, he can rapidly go through that and say, I was in a similar situation before, I handled it like X or Y. And now he's, and this is the same thing as we talk about making our police officers better. If we can increase their high stress training, now it's not, okay, this is the first time I've ever even had to go to my teaser. This is, oh, last month we just, I had like three, three people coming at me. 
and this is like nothing. Okay, I should go to my taser or, hey, I need to get out of this situation. I'm not just going to shoot the person. So in my eyes, it's, there are things we understand as, as humans. It's what you guys, you know, you guys are teaching, how we're treating each other, and then putting training, making training as realistic as possible to make sure that when somebody goes forward into these situations, it hopefully isn't the first time that they've seen that situation or a similar situation and they can react as, as a person, not a, not a machine. You mentioned your spirituality and um, moral framework. Do you have a feeling it was ever, you were ever at a point where you were about to lose it and like it would just crumble? And how did you recover from it? I think I, at, at times I, I was more angry, not angry with God or, you know, I, I, I would pray there. I, I have a lot of, you know, anecdotes, uh, stories that, you know, brought me. And even as I look back in my journal entries, you know, brought me to a, to a very angry place. But I, I really leaned on my relationship with God, my relationship in my spirituality, in my faith formation. Uh, to kind of get through that. Um, I don't think there was ever a time, no, I, 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 we were in a bad situation that we just needed to, you know, get ourselves out. I, I would say the same for me, no. Um, but I was also unbelievably thankful that it was no, because I saw other guys that it did. Um, so, so I was always felt very lucky. That, I was, that it didn't crumble for me, but it certainly can, right? And I watched it happen in other cases. Um, and I've seen it happen to the 17, 18, 19 year old who can't process necessarily the same way as someone that has more life experience, more, more experiences in general, that they can't kind of process that well. And, and we, in one particular instance, I had a Marine that turned his weapon on an Iraqi partner and, and killed him. And uh, he, you know, mitigating circumstance to that was he lost four of his, he lost four of his squad mates in that given week when that happened. Um, you know, he ended up getting, you know, in the investigation, you know, he ended up getting prosecuted and was charged with voluntary manslaughter vice murder, you know, because of the mitigating circumstances and ended up doing about two years. And, and that's tough to take because, you know, we didn't really have those red flags that we, you know, the red flags came out after the fact, you know, in the investigation of, well, he did say this and he did say that, or he did this or he did that, you know, it really didn't come to fruition until we really had, had the ability to, you know, dissect it in an investigation. I have another follow-on. Um, now, you mentioned dehumanization. Um, where, did, where did dehumanization and conflict and where did recognizing humanity begin? Would it be like OIF, OEF, any of those, any of those conflicts? I mean, for, for say Vietnam, I mean, I would say the enemy was, from what I know, was dehumanized and made it, made it easier to kill them. Um, where in the modern era do you think the humanity came into your training? I think that's something we still struggle with today. I mean, look at protesters on, on both sides of, 
of the fence we have. Social media, in my opinion, has is now taking the role as the dehumanizing force. Um, people are propelled from chat rooms into onto the streets or into capital buildings or in various cities in the U.S. Um, because they can make somebody a, a username instead of a person behind it. They're not yelling at somebody. They're typing a message into a screen. So I think dehumanizing it is always an effort and always will be an effort just in a different form. While it was propaganda leaflets uh, in a different conflict, now it's just, you know, whether it's fake news or, or what have you, uh, is how it's being presented now because there is extreme, extremely low uh, barrier of entry on social media. Uh, so people can use that very swiftly and very strongly. Uh, so I would venture to say that overall dehumanizing hasn't gone away, um, but within the US military, it is uh, a very, we have the luxury of having a professional military force, like I was saying in the beginning, where they are trained very robustly and very well. And oftentimes you have a long period before deployment, which ensures that you are um, hopefully as well trained as you can before you go. And I would think, you know, if a piece of it would be the professionalization of the force, and that's an all volunteer force, and, and I would say 75 on. Yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. I mean, that's just a little piece. There's other factors that come into play there, but I would, that would be like, I think that has a big part to do with it, that everybody in the military is in the military voluntarily um, and not being, you know, uh, conscripted. All right, thank you. Mark. Yeah, so uh, joining the military at a young age, Ken and, and Joe, I know you guys commissioned in, uh, and Sean, I think you joined like 18, right? Um, how do you guys feel joining at that younger age, uh, building a reflection process on your decision-making. And, and how often did you guys reflect at that young age versus now? Um, and then how, how, how has that built, you know, your reflection process? If you guys have like an established routine, whether through prayer, meditation, or, or how, how do you guys, you know, feel that shaped your life? I definitely see the, my, my, my growth in my reflection process as I've kept journals since I was a second lieutenant, I probably have eight, eight, nine journals from everywhere I've went. And, you know, I, I tried to keep them as best I could, but I can see my naivete as a second lieutenant. I can see that I was so full of shit that, you know, not to, you know, but, you know, I could see the maturation of my ability to reflect and rationalize and as, as I, as I, got older. So we're all old guys with age come wisdom. So that's, that's kind of, I think writing is a way I do it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a great writer, but I mean, I do capture uh, my reflections and, and try to keep journals. So I, I would echo the same thing Ken said, and, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's a combination of things, right? It's writing, it's prayer, it's thinking about it. It's, it's, Reflecting on it as you go for a run or walk in the morning, um, <clears throat> but as Ken says, you know, I you know I think about you know when I was 21, 22, second lieutenant, you know, leading troops. I thought I knew what I was doing, right? I thought I had it figured out. 
And then 10 years later, as a company commander, you know, I thought I had it figured out then, kind of laughed at what I thought when I was a lieutenant. And so, you know, now as a, as a retired colonel, right, PhD student, I think I have it figured out, right? So I'm looking back at what I did then. So I'm just, but then I laugh at myself, right? Like 10, 15 years from now, I know I'm going to look back and be like, what kind of nonsense were you talking then? So it, it's a process and it doesn't end, I don't think. Uh, I, I don't think I... Uh really coped with it at all. I was extremely immature and uh, really didn't think about it after the fact until it kind of like presents itself to you. And, and uh, it's embarrassing to say because I have a fraction of experience that these guys have, uh, but you, I mean, put it out there. Uh, in, in September, it really just kind of like, the whole withdrawal just kind of like flushed everything out. And even though I have a fraction of the experience that these guys have, I never, I went on leave after deployment. I didn't even do the post-deployment uh, reintegration training. And at the time I was like, dude, like I've already, I was like, I'm force recovering. I've done shooting packages, jump out of planes. Like this is not like, this is just, you know, rounding off the experience and then went on leave. And then years later, it just kind of presents itself because you never cope or really unboxed or wrote anything down. So now, like taking lessons of, of older people and having good mentors, being able to kind of write things down, think about the experience as a whole. And fortunately having uh, good people around me that have reached out. Like I said, I said this earlier, I'm an emotional guy. Uh, having good people around me that kind of recognize when I'm having these moments and uh, being able to help me through. So if you ever see anybody around you that may not be willing to uh, say that they need help, kind of recognizing when your friends need help and reaching out can go a long way. So let, let me say something, Sean just reminded me, right? So it's those people around you and, and recognize. So <clears throat> when, when I you know, came back finally from my last deployment and was getting out of the army, um, you, you don't have, you know, you know, as Ken said earlier, right, there's not a whole lot of time to, to deal with what, what you went through, right? And because you're either in the deployment, coming back, getting ready to go, it's just one thing after another. And, and when you're when you're in the middle of combat, you know, you don't have time to do the morning, right? You honor you honor the fallen and you're getting shot out the same day. Um, so for me, you know, 10 years after the fact, I had met up with a couple of guys from my unit that had been with me in Afghanistan in 0607. And one was asking me if I had been to therapy. And I said, no, oh, I'm fucking airborne ranger. I'm fine, what the hell would I go to therapy for, you know? I said, I'm fine, you know, I don't need this shit. And he said, well, how are you sleeping? I said, no, we don't sleep. Bad dreams every night. Well, how's, you know, how's your family life, right? It's in the middle of my second divorce, you know, and well, how's this going, right? And then I'm like, okay, all right, I get the point, right? I said, you think that'll work? He said, I've been doing it for five years. I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. And I went to the first therapist, not knowing what to say, you know, like, all right, you know, maybe I should be here. What's wrong with you? Nothing, you know. And for about a year, nothing really worked, right? And then I told my buddy, I said, well, that was a waste of time. He said, go to a different one. But I ended up going to three, and the third one was was pretty significant, right? And it made a big difference. Um, but again, I would have never done that unless there were those people around me that had kind of 
reinforce it. Like, hey, go do it. You know, you do it, do it for yourself, not just for yourself, but for your family, for your kids, for the people you're going to be around. Yeah, and that's really shaking the stigma of therapy. I mean, that's every walk of life. It's not just not just military. I mean, obviously, there's an emphasis in this discussion, but you know, whether you're police officer, fireman, uh, any kind of any kind of background, if you need that, um, if you need that kind of psychological assistance, you know, you have to be able to shake that stigma and, and, and seek it out because that benefits. Anything else? Well, I hope we met our objective. Um, Thanks all for coming. Yeah, appreciate you coming. It's it's not often, you know, Joe will say, and Sean as well, it's not often we get opportunities to kind of be a little bit vulnerable, you know, to kind of expose ourselves a little bit of our own experiences in order to um, help you and make you aware, you know, the, the awareness of it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you guys.